You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. here uh, worshiping with us. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'm at, uh, pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. Again, just very glad that you chose uh, to come and worship with us here today. If this is your first time, hopefully we were able to get you a bulletin. Uh, at the bottom of that, we have what we just call our sign-in drop. We would love for you to fill out the information at the bottom of that and drop that in the offering baskets when they come around at the end of our time together uh, today, just so that we can acknowledge that you are here and get to know you uh, a little bit better. We are in week two of our Give series. If this is your first time being with us around the holidays, this is something that we do annually uh, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. We want to take some time out and think through how generous God has actually been to us, specifically in him sending his son Jesus to the earth as a baby as we always celebrate around Christmas time. We, we believe that the best response to that is for us to be generous as well. We believe that that God coming down in the form of a man to be born and die and be raised from the dead for us to save us from sin is the greatest act of generosity that our world has ever seen. And we we believe it is appropriate then for us to respond to that generosity with generosity of our own, knowing that he came to a world of needy people, people who needed him, people who were in need of this gift. And so we want to respond to those who are needy around us as well with generosity in, in response to his gift to us. I want to give you a little bit of history about our Give series and what type of things that we have done during our Give series in the past, just to give you some context uh, for what we're doing here. Even dating back to before we were a church, the Give series was started uh, at the downtown church, the church that, that sent us out and planted us. So we kind of picked it up and have been doing it every year. But I want to give you a little bit of info about some of the things that we've done, uh, starting with what, what our downtown church did first when the Give series first got going. So we were partnering with this, uh, this homeless ministry, ministering to people who are in a homeless situation, have been partnering with them for a little while. And so we was like, hey, we want to be able to be a blessing to the people that you are serving. What are some needs that the people that you are serving, the homeless community in Columbia, what are some needs that they have? And they told us they need some coats. They, they, they need some coats. It's cold. They don't have homes to go to. They don't, they don't have a place to go to to be warm. And many of them don't have coats, so they're in need of more coats. So In response to this exceedingly generous gift of of God coming in the form of a man to save us, we feel like it's only appropriate that we call our people to respond in radically generous ways as well. So one Sunday, people showed up unsuspectingly, kind of like you're doing today, not really knowing what to expect. Let everyone know, hey, we have a homeless community in our city that does not have coats. What we told them was, if you have another coat, other than the one that you are wearing. Now, again, this is late November, early December. If you have another coat other than the one you are wearing, we're going to ask you to bring your coats up to the front at the end of our time together today, and we're going to donate those to uh, the homeless community that is in here in Columbia, South Carolina. And people did, and people came, and you could see the, the, the struggle on people's faces. Like you, you could sense it, the, the, the struggles. Like, I'm going to give up this coat. If I would have known that you was going to ask for coats, I wouldn't have worn my favorite coat. I wouldn't have worn the coat that I like. I would have just gave up the one that I didn't like. And then you get that thought in your head that's like, that's not what Jesus did. He gave us of himself. The next year, we're still partnering with this, with this ministry that's serving the homeless community here in Columbia. What do you need? What do the people, what, do the, what is the homeless community that you're serving? What do they currently need? It's like, well, we have a lot of, a lot of homeless people here who don't have a, a, a warm bed to sleep in, and they also do not have shoes. This was the next year. 
obviously by this time, if you've already been around, even if you hadn't been around, you probably heard. You probably heard what we're about at this point in time. Came and told our people, hey, we have a homeless community in our, in our city. Many of them do not have shoes for their feet, and they're going to be sleeping outside in the winter here in Columbia, South Carolina. So we're going to ask you to take off your shoes and walk out barefoot. And it might give you a, it will almost give you a taste of what the homeless community in Columbia is dealing with currently. So we're going to ask you to give us your shoes. At that time, Midtown was, was, was primarily college students, I believe, had some mamas call asking for the Sperry's back. You ain't getting them back. You ain't getting them back. I understand. I understand. We did not make your child give us those shoes. We asked your child to. Your child happily obliged. You're not getting them back. A few years, or maybe, maybe even the next year, we found out about a, 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 an area, a people group, on the earth who had not had the Bible translated into their language. There were people there that were ministering to them, but they didn't have a, a Bible that was there, and they needed some money to come in in order for them to be able to, to create a Bible translated into their language so that these people could, could read the Word of God in their own language. And so we, sent, we raised money and sent money to them to be able to translate the Bible into the language of a people group that it had never been translated into before. We respond to God's generosity with generosity of our own. Next year, uh, maybe a couple years after that, we started partnering with this ministry. I believe it's called Project Rescue. It might be called Project Hope. I'm not 100% sure. Their ministry is in the red light district in New Delhi, India. Their ministry is to, was to primarily to girls who were sex slaves and were in the sex trafficking industry from birth. Their goal was to try to rescue these girls from sex slavery. We asked them, well, what do you need? They said, well, the, the ultimate thing that we want is to be able to build a house for these girls that these girls can go to to be rescued. We call it a safe house to be rescued from this industry. They said, how much money do you need? They said, we need $60,000 to be able to do it. At that time, the, the, probably the, the average age of, of, of the downtown church at that point was probably early 20s, maybe mid-20s, maybe mid-20s at that point. A lot of young people, a lot of college students raised $60,000 that year for Give so that a home, a safe house could be built for girls rescued out of the sex slavery industry. The family that, that, that runs Project Rescue basically adopted these girls in, into their family. They said, we, we, are, we are your family. We're going to be here with you until you graduate high school and beyond. We're going to be here with you through it all. So we follow up with them. And we say, well, okay, give us an update. How's it been going? And one of the things that, that, that the man told us was that oftentimes the, the girls, when they came in, it was like you could look in their eyes and it's like you don't even see life. It's like you, you, can't even, you don't even see life. You see that they're, that they're active. They can move around and do things, but you don't see life. And that they will continue to, to share Jesus with them and just love on them in very tangible ways and just be there for them and respect them and honor them as image bearers of God. They said, well, we've been, we've been beginning to see some life come back into the, into the eyes and the hearts of, of, of a lot of these girls. And we said, that, that is amazing. That is amazing. What, what, what else do you need? Do you have any other needs? And they're saying, well, now the mothers of these daughters who also have sons are saying, well, can you do anything for my sons? Because the sons either get into the, the, the sex trafficking industry as well and become sex slaves or they become pimps. That's the only two options oftentimes that those sons, that those boys have. And the mom's like, I don't want that for my sons. Can you do something for them? They told us we want to build another safe house for boys to rescue boys out of this industry. I wish you could have we didn't promise them anything at that point. I wish you could have seen his face 
when we told her we had raised another $60,000 for those boys to be able to have a safe house to live in and not have to live in the brothels in the red light district of New Delhi, India. He just cried. He just, he just cried with, with joy and with gratitude. And so that's, that's what we want to be about. I wasn't planning on crying. Uh, that's what we wanted to be about. The reality is Jesus saw us in our need. He could have stayed in, in, in the paradise of heaven. He could have stayed separate from all the neediness. He could have stayed separate from all the pain, from all the suffering. But instead he said, no, I'm going to give of myself. I'm going to sacrifice as much as anyone can and come for the purpose of dying for those who will believe in me. We want to respond with radical generosity. In 2012, there was this young, uh, overhyped pastor in training named Ant who had this talking about starting a church called Midtown Two Notch. And we wanted to plan a church where, where, where we could specifically target neighborhoods and areas and communities where people had, where neighborhoods that had been, excuse me, riddled with poverty. And the downtown church raised $48,000 to send us out to star Midtown Two Notch. Our Give series has a legacy. It has a legacy of being there for those who are in need. We as a church, this is who we are. This is who we want to be. We obviously don't want this just to be a three-week thing that we do at the end of the year. We want God to change our hearts as we sacrifice to, to generously give of what we have for those who are in need. Generosity is beautiful. Generosity is beautiful. You got to have that vision for generosity. You got to understand what it actually is. Oftentimes, when, when you first think about sacrificially giving generosity, the first thing you think about is what you might lose. I want to tell those stories about our Give series to, to, to let us all see what we have gained. What a blessing it is to be able to give to those things that we have given to in our past and we're currently giving to as well in our Serve the City partnerships. At the same time, even though we see these, these aspects of, of, of generosity, these examples of generosity, I should say, it's difficult to be truly generous, even for Christians. In fact, it's an issue that many of us don't even like to be challenged on. Some of y'all heard the pastor that was being read and you rolled your eyes. Are we going to talk about giving again? I would say how we use our money is potentially the area of our lives for Christians where we have the least amount of accountability. I can't think of another area of our lives where we, where we have less accountability than the way that we use our money. In a church like ours where we emphasize uh, confessing sin, like John's, James 5.16 says, a church that, that, that emphasizes actually doing life together and being real about our strengths, being real about our weaknesses, in many areas, we, we, we have people who are okay with, you can ask them deep, personal, specific questions about pride, jealousy, selfishness, even, even about insecurities and wounds and scars from the past, even about things like sexual sin, but you start asking about how they're using their money, and it's a problem. It's a problem. Yeah, I'll be open about these issues over here. Yeah, yeah, we can, we can talk about that. You can press me on this, but you asking me, what? You asking me about how I'm spending God's money? It's a problem. Not only, not only do people get offended, but people begin to get defensive. I've heard of pastors that will bring in a guest speaker to talk about the issues of tithing and giving generously because they didn't want the people to be mad at the pastor, so we bring in somebody else to preach about it. You can be mad at them. They ain't going to be back for maybe another year, so you can be mad at them. Hopefully we'll have blown over. 
there are many people, you ask them, well, what is, what is, are you tithing? What does tithing look like, look like for you? Why not? You get met with anger. A wall goes up. There's an extreme privacy around financial stewardship of God's money. God's money. Extreme privacy. And, and it's problematic, right? Because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus says, I'm going to be able to give you one way to have a good indicator of where someone's heart actually is. And it's the way that they spend their money, the way that they use their money is an indicator of how, what they truly, truly care about. But then you ask somebody about it and all you get is pushback. This is extremely problematic for us as a people who are striving to grow in the Lord. To, to have this one test out with Jesus, like, hey, you want to know where someone's heart is? Look at how they spend their money. Like, all right, let's talk about how you spend your money. No, that's my business. It's not your business. That's my business. That's nothing to do with you. Why would you ask me that question? I would say it's not only an area of extreme privacy. I would say not only is it an area maybe where we have the uh, least amount of accountability, in some ways I think it's maybe the area where we have the least amount of repentance as well. We don't want to be challenged on it. We don't want people to talk to us about it. We don't want accountability so, so that I can continue to do things that I want to do with my money. To get started, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. While you're turning there, I'm going to, I'm going to read a, a, a verse from Acts chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to read verse 45 while you're turning there or while you're scrolling there, whatever you do. To give you a little context for this verse that I'm going to read, this is, this is the, a, a description or one of the verses that describes the first church that was started in Acts chapter 2. At the day of Pentecost, Peter preached a sermon. A lot of people came to, came to believe in Jesus, and this church, this original church, was, was started not too long after Jesus had ascended into heaven. And the Holy Spirit begins to birth this crazy generosity in this church. This is one of the first things we see as a marker of the, of the very first church, of people who, who didn't have any other understanding of what a church was. All they knew is they believed in Jesus. The Holy Spirit was now living in them and leading them. And this is one of the things that happened. Acts chapter 2, verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is one of the first recorded acts of the early church in Scripture. It's one thing if somebody has a need and you meet that need, and that's a beautiful and wonderful thing to do. When we aren't able to meet the need of someone who is in need, for, I'll be honest, just for me, I, have, I don't even consider selling what I have so that I can now have the money to meet the need of the person who is in need. This is next-level generosity. This is I'm not letting excuses get in the way. I'm not letting excuses of the fact that I have things that I don't need get in the way of you having things that you need. This is extreme generosity. This is what the gospel should do in us, in our hearts. It changes us. They sold their stuff. They got families, and they sold their stuff. Distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is writing to a church. They've already made this commitment to give uh, to another church, most likely the church in Jerusalem. They're, they're struggling financially. This is an impoverished church that, they are, that Paul is coming to, to collect this, this, this financial gift, this financial donation for. He's just writing them this, courage, this letter to give them the, a final bit of encouragement before he comes and picks, picks up the gift that they have promised. I'm just going to read through it one more time, then, I'm, then I'll pray and we'll, 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 work our way, we'll work our way through it. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 6. 
The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing to many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let me pray for it, and then we'll work through it. Father, would you birth an unbelievable, supernatural generosity in our hearts, individually and corporately as a church as well? Father, there be any, if there are any lies that we are believing, if there are any wrong priorities that we have that are preventing us from being as generous as you would call us to be, would you squash those things in our hearts and in our lives? Would you grant us a joyful repentance, a joyful surrender of ourselves fully to you? Would you use this, this sermon as we get into your word for that purpose and to that end? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let's read verse 7 again. I'll read verse 7 there. I got four reasons that I'm just going to pull out of this passage. I can't get to everything that's in there. I got four reasons why we should be generous that we're going to pull out of this passage. But let's get to verse 7 before we do that once more. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God's ultimate goal is not that we would begrudgingly or reluctantly give of what he has entrusted to us. He wants it to be a joyful thing. The Greek word, I don't speak Greek, I think it's hilaros. It has the same root as our word hilarious when he's saying we're going to be a cheerful giver. This is happy giving. This is eager, excited giving. That's the culture we want to create in our church, in our lives, individually and corporately. We'd be excited to be able to, to fund ministry and, and what God is doing in and through his church. We'd be excited to be able to partner with our, our Serve the City partners as they are serving the vulnerable in our communities. He wants this giving to be something that we're excited about, that we love to give. He wants to change our heart in such a way that the, dec the decreasing of our own personal possessions so that others in need might have more will be something that gets us excited. That it wouldn't primarily be something that, that we are upset about or bothered by, but primarily something that we will be excited about the opportunity to do. It wouldn't primarily be something that we resist against, but something we move towards with excitement. If you were here last week, I talked about us as a family of churches wanting to raise $21,000 to support our Serve the City partnerships. What was your first feeling when you heard that? What's that going to cost me? Was, was your first feeling resistance? Oh, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to give. That would be very sacrificial of me. I don't want to do that. Was your first feeling reluctance? He wants to change us and make us new from the inside out that we would love generosity as much as he does, that we would freely, openly, excitedly move towards generosity. 
to get to our first point, let's read verse 7 again. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. First reason we should be generous. Our giving brings God delight. Our giving brings God to light. Now, it, uh, if you tend to see God as someone who is, who is distant, as less relational, but more as just some, some distant ruler who kind of oversees everything and makes things go the way that he wants to, but is not very personally and relationally connected, and then that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you if that's the way that you view God. But if you know God as a relational, a near, a father, who is loving, who is always present, someone who cares about you and someone that you, act, that you also care about, then this will mean something to you. This will be important to you that this act is something that God loves. It doesn't say God loves you more if you give more, but it says that the act, the, 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 the cheerful giving, God loves. A couple of weeks ago, so I grew up in uh, Chester, South Carolina. Uh, my dad, who's also a pastor, his church threw him a pastor's appreciation uh, service. Feel free to take any thoughts from this example that you want to. Uh, church threw him a, uh, a pastor's appreciation service. I wanted to be there so bad, right? Chester, this was, this was Saturday night, right? Y'all know what I do on Sundays, right? So I had an early morning the next day that I had to, I had to come and, uh, and serve with the church. So for me, traveling, on, on, doing things on Saturday evenings for me in general can be kind of difficult, because I like to be, be more restless, so I'm energized when I come and do this. Either way, I was like, I'm not missing this. I wanted to be there. Why? Because I knew that he would love to see me there. It's not that I, th- I knew he wouldn't love me more. I knew, I knew that that was set. I knew that that was set in stone. But it's just because I care about him, because I love him, I want to do the things that he loves. It says God loves a cheerful giver. If we know God in a real personal way, where, where, where he actually is someone that we care about how he feels about things, right? it matters to us what he loves and what he doesn't love. This should matter to us that God loves a cheerful. He, he delights in this. He loves to see his children giving generously, cheerfully, excitedly, especially to those who are in need. When you really love someone, especially a parent, as God is to us, you don't just want to do what they tell you to do just so you can say you're being obedient. You're being obedient. You want to do it because it matters to them, because it's something that they, that they care about. God loves it when we give cheerfully. He delights in it. Reason number two from this passage that we should be generous is giving is good for you. Giving is good for you. Let's look at verse 11 again chapter 9, verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. That word enrich means to enhance the quality of something. He's saying the quality of your life will actually be better if you give. That's what he says. You will be enriched in every way, he says, to be generous in every way. Now, I don't think this verse is primarily talking about being enriched financially. I'll tell you why I say that. If you look at the end of verse 10, Paul says that God will increase, sorry, God will and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And then he goes on from there to say that we'll be enriched in every way, that God actually increases the righteousness in us. He transforms us and changes us when we are generous in a way that makes us want to be generous even more. It enables us to be even more generous as he increases the harvest of our righteousness. It says our, our lives will be enriched in every way. 
The lie that we often believe is that the enriched life, the fulfilling life, actually comes from us having as much as we can possibly have, of us amassing as many resources, as much money, as many things that we like as we can possibly get our hands on. That's the lie that the world wants us to believe. But Jesus, but Paul is saying here that our lives are enriched as we are generous. The reality is a lot of us believe that contentment in life actually comes from material possessions. The Bible, specifically the Old Testament, will call this covetousness. It's the belief that, that a creation, something else created by God, could actually fulfill us, could actually give us the, the deepest, ultimate type of joy and contentment in life. And so we believe it. We believe, man, if I just had a house like them, if I had a car like that one, if I had my bank account, like they bank account, man, I'd be straight. I'd be good. I'd be good. If I was just able to dress the way that they dress, if I had that outfit or their wardrobe, man, I'd be, I'd be straight. It's different for all of us. For some of us, it's having money in the bank makes us feel secure. Makes us feel like we're going to be okay because we, our money is there to take care of us. And if we ever feel like we, 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 we're not okay, we just go, okay, let me check my bank out, see what I got. Okay, I think, all right, all right, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. I'm okay. Paul is showing us that we have it backwards. We have it backwards. We think our lives are enriched when we have more stuff. Paul is saying that we become more righteous and thus find more joy in the Lord when we actually are generous. Being generous is good for you. You got to hear that. Being generous is good for you. We often don't believe that, as I said. That's why for the vast majority of people, when your income goes up, your standard of living goes up right with it. Right? Instinctively. You don't even think twice about it. You already been trying to get that new car, and then you got the raise, and now you can get it. So when, you're, when, you're, when your income goes up, your standard of living goes up with it. Listen, many times when that is a case, that is telling you something about where you can actually find joy in life. I'm not saying it's bad to get a nicer car. That's not what I'm saying. But I do got to ask you this. To those of us who have our needs met, which will increase the most? Which will increase more if you got a raise, your spending or your giving? Which will increase the most if you got a raise? Your spending or your giving? Your generosity, I appreciate that. Your generosity or your spending on yourself? This exposes our hearts. We believe that contentment is found in, in amassing things for ourselves. So we don't see a raise as an opportunity to give more. We see it as an opportunity to spend more because we think in spending we'll find more contentment in life. In our society, we're bombarded with advertisement after advertisement, day after day. It's on TV, it's on billboards, it's on social media, trying to get you to buy whatever they're selling. And they're giving you this a lot, sometimes subtly, sometimes in a very overt way. Hey, you'd be happier if you had this. You know how you would feel if you had this? I remember it was a car commercial a few years ago. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, it said, the question is not all the specs and the trimmings on the car. The question is... When you turn your car on, does it return the favor? What's the tagline? When you turn your car on, does it return the favor? Don't, don't, don't lose the relevation with the illustration. Now, what it's saying is this car is going to make you feel alive. You're going to feel like you're truly living if you have this car. It's what it's saying. It's feeding you that lie over and over. Joy and contentment is found right here in this material possession, in this created thing instead of in the creator. 
We must be, com- be prepared to combat all those lies that our society feeds us as we remember that our Savior emptied himself to save us. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, reads like this, talking about Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He emptied himself. He denied himself of his own comforts, of all the riches that he had in heaven to come and live a lowly, humble life. Are we believing the lies of instant gratification over eternal joy in the Lord? Because this is what Christ is rejecting, right? This, this, this idea, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Right When he's tempted to not even go to the cross, he, he, he doesn't pursue his own instant gratification, which oftentimes when we're selfish with our money, that's actually what we're after. Oh, this thing will make me happy right here in the moment versus ongoing growth and righteousness and generosity in the Lord. We see our Lord and our Savior rejecting the lies of instant gratification for eternal joy in the Lord. Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, He endured the cross for the eternal joy. I saw a quote from one of our Lexington pastors on generosity. His name is Brandon Clements. He said it like this. And here's the secret. The more you buy and upgrade, the more you will believe that you don't have enough. But the more you give, the more you will realize you already have enough. If you give away what you have, you'll find contentment. If you keep what you have, you will never have enough. We give because it is good for us. It is good for us. It is not just good for the one that we are blessing and the one that we are giving to. It is good for us. Reason number three that we see in this passage for Christians being generous, it all belongs to God. It all belongs to God. It is God's money, God's resourcing. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. 2 Corinthians 9, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. He's in control over that both ends. He controls the, he, he, he owns food, he owns money and financial resources. It all belongs to him. Deuteronomy 10, 14 says it this way. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it saying everything on this planet belongs to God. Everything belongs to him. I believe at the heart of many, many of the reasons why we aren't radically generous, because deep down, I know, we, I know we've heard sermons about, about stewardship before, but deep down, we believe that money belongs to us. Deep down, that's my money, right? Deep down, it belongs to me. We don't believe that God owns everything. We believe it belongs to us. The fact that God owns everything means that we are, we are stewards. If you look at the word steward, it's, it's, like, it's a manager of someone else's assets or property, someone who manages something that belongs to someone else. A, a good steward is someone who uses the property of the owner the way the owner would have used it. A bad steward is someone who uses the property of the owner the way the owner wouldn't have, wouldn't have used it. The definition of embezzlement is a misappropriation of funds placed in one's trust or belonging to one's own employer. The definition of embezzlement. 
misappropriation of funds placed in one's trust or belonging by one's employer. That made us sound like thieves. To use what belongs to him in a way that he would not use it? To, to use money that belongs to him on yourself when he would have wanted you to give to someone else? is embezzlement. It does not belong to us. That's a shocker because you think the money belongs to you. That's why that's a shock. Because we think it belongs to us. So what do you mean, embezzlement? It's mine. I can do what I want to. No. It does not belong to us. We manage something that belongs to him. Christians be like, hashtag Christians be like, God, my heart is yours. I worship you. My body is yours, God. You made me. My life is yours, God. I was, brought, I was bought with the price by your blood. But don't, God, don't mess my money. You got to back up on that one. My money over here, that's mine. You got to back up. I believe this is the reason why we want no accountability at all when it comes to our finances. When it comes to how much money we make and how we use our money, we want no accountability at all because we think it belongs to us. If it belongs to you, maybe you don't need any accountability to it. But if you are a steward of someone else's money and someone is asking you, how are you using the money, you should be able to freely say, hey, this is how I use the money because it doesn't belong to you. There should be records of this, right? There's accountability when you steward someone else's resources or property or money. If you see the money in your bank as God's money, what's the problem with someone holding you accountable about how you're using it? If you see yourself as managing someone else's money, you'd expect that, accountabil- that accountability. Excuse me. But our attitude is often, this is my money, so I'm not accountable to anyone for it. It's mine, and it's not any of your business. Don't get me wrong. I believe God absolutely wants to use the income that you make on your job to provide for you, to meet your needs, and that kind of thing. Don't get me wrong. I think that is a good appropriation of God's money. We are his kids. He cares about his kids being provided for. If he has blessed you with a job, he wants to use that to take care of you. But if you aren't generous with the money that belongs to the most generous being in the universe, you are not following God. You are not following him. No one is more generous than him. What, is it, what, is it, what does it mean if we say we're managing his money? Nobody's more generous with him, and we use it all for ourselves. It's a misappropriation of funds. I ain't going to use the E word because y'all looked at me sideways when I used it. It's a misappropriation of his funds. It belongs to him, and no one is more generous than him. And we see... In verse 6, I'll read it. The point is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Jump down to verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Part of the reason we don't treat God's money like it's his money is because we don't believe our fourth point, which is God provides for us. God provides provides for us. These verses I just read are often misunderstood. It's not saying God has to make you rich if you give a lot, but God does promise a blessing with giving. It could be financial. It could be ministry fruit. It could be growing you in generosity, like we said a little bit earlier. Regardless, the main point here is that we can be generous because God is our provider. 
He provides seed to the sower. Everything that you have in your bank account that you think is yours now, he provided it for you. He can take care of us. I think Jesus, when teaching about us being overly concerned about, him, about being provided for, Matthew chapter 6, we'll start at verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The, these things here is referring to what he spoke about a little bit earlier, what we eat, what we drink, what we wear. Verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He's saying don't be anxious about how you will be provided for tomorrow. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. First priority. Seek his rule, his reign, his purpose in your life and in the lives of others. And trust that God will provide for your needs to be met. Trust that he will provide for you to live in the way that he has called you to. Maybe I'll say it that way. The way that he has designed and created you to live, he will provide for that. Problem is, we don't want that really, right? We want to live the way that we want to live, with the standard of living that we want to have. You see, God wants us to be able to be generous, finding security in the fact that he will provide for us. Problem is, money tells us that it's our security, doesn't it? Money tells us that we can put our trust in it. Money makes us think that if we just had enough of it, we'd be more secure and more okay. It tells us that it's our protection, that it's our shield, that it's our refuge, that it's our safety, that it's our strong tower, that it's our fortress, that it's our Savior and our God. And so we bow down to it, and we worship it, and we cling to it more than we cling to God. We oftentimes find it hard to be generous because it's extremely hard to let go of what you worship. It's extremely hard to let go of what you worship. We generally believe that if we had more money, we'd be more generous. But that's not how generosity works. Research shows that, that, that uh, social, in a, from a socioeconomic standpoint, those in the upper class give a smaller percentage of their resources than those in the lower class. We think that having more money will make us generous. That's not, how, that's not how money works. That's not how generosity works. It's not a matter of your worth. It's a matter of your worship. Generosity is not a matter of your net worth. It is a matter of your worship. Generosity is not ultimately about the size of your bank account. It's about the size of your faith in God as your provider. Do we have faith that God is our provider? In order to be generous, we, we generally don't need more money. We need more faith, more trust in God that he provides for us. Generosity is primarily a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of possessions. Truth be told, if we don't have faith in God that he will provide for us and that it all belongs to him, oftentimes money isn't just our possession, but it actually becomes our possessor because it controls us. Instead of us controlling money and sending it where God would have us to, it actually controls us and leads us away from God. Many of us cling to our money way tighter than we cling to God. In times of trouble, in in times of anxiety, we cling more to money than we cling to God. This is problematic. 
Jesus said, you, want, you cannot serve two masters, either God or money. You either love one and hate the other or hate one and love the other. Jesus' words, red letter. You see, we were made to follow God as our king. We were made to trust him to provide for us and submit to him. Right? See, back in the time, especially in the Old Testament when the, when the Bible was written, uh, whether or not you had a great life when you lived in a kingdom was really based on how good of a king the king was. If the king was good, the economy was generally good, and generally people were, were provided for. So you submit to the king, and he makes sure that everyone in the kingdom is provided for. So this is how we were made to relate to God, that we, we submit to him as we trust that he is our provider. But sin has us twisting and corrupting the whole system and the whole process. So we submit to money, trusting that it will provide for us. And money becomes our king and our God, and we worship it. If we're going to walk in the type of generosity that we're called to walk in, we need to be reminded that he is God, that he is in control that he's got us, that he's not abandoning us, as we just sang, that he's never going to let us down, that he is good. We can trust in him. We need to remember he is our security. He is our provision. He makes sure that we are okay. He does that even better than we do it. For your whole life, he's done a better job of making sure you're okay than you have. He is good. He is trustworthy. He is in control. He will take care of of us. And we know this because at our time of greatest need, at our time when we needed him more than any other time, when he was going to be crucified, as he sits in the garden of Gethsemane, as he prays and as he's contemplating, am I going to go to the cross? And he's talking to his father about it. He made the decision then that he makes over and over and over again. And that's that he is going to do what he needs to do to take care of his people. If he would die, if he, if he did not abandon us on his worst day, he's not abandoning you on your worst day. If he didn't abandon us when it cost him his life, he's not going to abandon us when he can just give you whatever you need to make sure that you're taken care of. He does not leave his people. He is there. He is good. He provides. He is always near. He is God. We put our trust in him. He is our refuge. He has proven, proven himself to be trustworthy. He has proven that he has our good in mind. He has proven that he is able, capable, and willing to take care of us and provide for our needs, no matter what it might cost him. We must trust in him. If he would give his life to take us to be with glory, to take us to be with him in glory for the next, he will certainly make sure we have everything we need in this life until he gets us there. If he would give his life to us when we needed it, Surely he can give us the resources that we need to make sure we're provided for. We trust in the living God. We don't trust in a creation. We don't, we don't trust in something that he created. We trust in the creator, God himself. In a few moments, we're going to partake in communion together. A little bit after that, after we sing, we'll talk about our Serve the City partnerships. I just want us to sit in this one, in this one thing. As we take communion, as we take the, the, the broken bread that resembles, or that represents, I should say, the broken body of Jesus, as we dip it in the juice that represents the blood of Jesus, I want us to do this in remembrance of him, specifically remembering how far he is willing to go to provide for us. Remembering that he is God, 
that he'll go through what, go to whatever length he needs to to make sure we are good and we are okay and we are taken care of. That's what his broken body and his shed blood reminds us of today. As we think through generosity, let's remember his trustworthiness, that he is God and nothing else is. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful today for your generosity to us, for your willingness to sacrifice for, your, for our good, for your willingness to, to, to give of yourself. God, you shed your blood. You, you were tortured for hours because you wanted us to be saved. You wanted us to, to, to know you as our Savior. Father, generosity is difficult. It's difficult, God. We, we believe the lies that money is ultimately our provider, that it ultimately takes care of us. We don't see it as a means that you use to take care of us. We, we, we see it as an end in and of itself, uh, as a savior. And so we worship it. I confess for us as a church that we worship money over you. God, will you help us to remember that you are God? Will you help us to know that you are God? Father, in difficult times, in times, of, in times of stress, in times of worry, in times of anxiety, will you help us to run to you, to cling to you, because you are God, and you are good to us, Lord. Impress that on our hearts, Lord. In the front of our minds and in the depths of our hearts, remind us that you and you alone are our God, that you and you alone take care of us and have been providing for us every moment of our lives. Will you help us to remember that today? Will you help us to rejoice in that today? Would you help us to be overjoyed in that and that we would just generously pour ourselves out, Lord, as you lead us through your spirit? We need you to do it. It's in Christ's name I pray.